You're listening to the Pursue God Family Podcast, the official channel for marriage and parenting topics at PursueGod.org. Join Tracy and Brian Dwyer every week as they talk about living biblically in an increasingly secular world. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org slash family. Well, Tracy, today we're in the final week, week three of our series called After the Affair. Couples, you can find resources to talk through this uh, this all three of these lessons at pursuegod.org forward slash family. And in week one, Tracy, we talked about just the idea that there really is hope after the affair, that if you, if husband and wife are both committed, if offender and offended, whoever, whichever one is which, if you're both committed to, to reconciling and working through these issues, you really can make it through. And then last week, we talked about five things that the offender must do, the person who stepped out on the marriage, the person who had the affair. And today, Tracy, we want to talk just specifically to the person who's the victim. And, and I, I guess we should even just start by, by speaking to this person and saying, it is devastating what you're going through. And we're so, so sorry for what you're going through. I'm sh- I hope that there are people in your world, in your life, that are that bring that message that are carrying that message because it is so difficult but so so much of this now is going to be up to you it's not just up to your spouse who had the affair but tracy it's also up to the person who's the victim Mm -hmm. yeah so and the term that we use for this we call you the offended the person that was on the receiving end of the affair and even though your spouse, the offender, has a lot of responsibility of things they need to do to earn your trust back. You you have a part to play in that too. And it really is challenging in and of itself to keep your heart open. If you want to fight for your marriage, if you want a hopeful future, then you're going to have to do the work of keeping your heart open to allowing your spouse to earn your trust. And that's not an easy task because like you said, Brian, that's just such a devastating betrayal that can just wreck your life in a million ways that it can be hard to think, why would I ever want to build a life with this person again? But if a, if your spouse who you fell in love with and chose to marry all those years ago, you can kind of rekindle that and be reminded of that to build towards something better post affair. If you're willing to do the work that it's going to take as far as just extending forgiveness and allowing your spouse to earn trust back. Yeah, so your spouse has some things. Hopefully they've listened to lesson two in this series, and maybe you have as well. It's good for you to know the things that they should be working on. But today we're going to talk about some of your responsibilities. If you want to do your part to make this marriage survive this, then try these five things. Number one, take a deep breath. Tracy, what do we mean by that? Yeah, so this is, uh, if you've just found out, however that came about, you know, for maybe your spouse, the offender has come to you and confessed it. Maybe you saw some text messages. Maybe you saw your spouse with somebody else, whatever it is, that initial blow of hearing that your spouse had cheated, like confirmation that happened, having that initial um, conversation or whatever, the realization just, you need some time to just deal with the emotions that come with that just the feelings of betrayal, of sadness, of confusion. I mean, you might feel like your world is totally spinning. You don't even know which way is up. I mean, for me, what's always so crushing is that we do a lot of 
premarital counseling, you've done many weddings over the years and just the happiness of the wedding day and couples that are excited about this adventure of marriage and they love each other and they'd never do anything <laughs> to hurt each other, or disappoint. And then you meet with couples in a situation like this where an affair has happened and just how it's like, how did we get here? This isn't what either of us signed up for on that, those happier days and the days that we set our I do's. Why? It's just so hurtful that the person we thought loved us the most, who made those covenant promises in front of family and friends is now coming saying, I've been lying to you and I've been with somebody else. It's just your initial response needs to be, you just need to take a breath and, and kind of deal with every emotion that comes your way as it comes. Yeah, the truth is, and I, and I, I don't know if the our listeners are thinking about it like this, but the truth is you're probably going to be experiencing the stages of grief, just like mm -hmm. losing a loved one. I mean, it, it's going to feel a lot like, or maybe even worse than losing your spouse to, to death. And so I, I will put a link below to, to our topic on stages of grief. It might even be helpful for you to listen to that and watch that video and process that with somebody. But let me just read, read some of these things real quick for you. Cause Maybe this will help you to understand what you're going through right now. Number one, shock or denial. Number two, anger, that, that this defense mechanism that tries to protect your wounded heart. Number three, bargaining. You know, bar in the case of a death, it's, you're, you're like saying, uh, what, what would I need to do to get this person back? I'll do anything to get this person back. Number four, depression. And really the last stage in the stages of grief is acceptance is when you refocus that pain and begin to accept life without that person in this in this case of a death but now in the case of a of your spouse who cheated on you when you get to that acceptance phase you're saying okay it happened but i want to move forward now and this doesn't have to end in divorce you don't have to accept that the marriage is over hopefully i mean hopefully what we're talking about here is that he or she is going to do their, they're going to do their part. The offender is going to do their part and you're going to do your part. But these Tracy, these stages of grief, they, it's not really uh, linear, is it? I mean, this, these could just come in waves. They can come in cycles. And so really any of those things, you know, the, the offended person could be dealing with even just right now as they're listening to this. Yeah. You can jump between anger and depression and it's, it's never fun to feel like you have a vision for your life and then something happens that totally wrecks that and, and puts it on its head. And that's why this first piece of the puzzle for the offended is just to take a breath and to, and to give yourself some time to kind of process through what those emotions are and why you're feeling it, when you're feeling it, and just kind of trying to just get your feet under you with just that piece of it. And, and really, it is a death to what the marriage was. You're never going to be able to go back to what it was before the affair. But, but that's what we hope that couples would recognize the hopefulness of this is that you actually can have a healthier marriage post-affair if you're both willing to do the work that it's going to take to get there. Okay, so step one is take a deep breath. And then step two, Tracy, is to seek counsel for yourself. And, uh, you know, this might sound strange to the, the offended party, because they're like, well, hold on a second. I'm not the one that needs counsel. He needs the counsel. He's the one who screwed up. He's the one who made the mistake. Well, we did, we did tell him to go seek counsel <laughs> for himself. So you're right. He needs counsel for himself. But, but you also need wise counsel for yourself as well, because you're going to be processing some things that you need to be able to 
process with a wise confidant. There are going to be other things you're going to process with your spouse, but there's tons of stuff that you're going to have to process with somebody else just on your own. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is a good time for you to have the trusted people in your life. And again, as we talked about last week to the offender, you want to choose people that are going to give you godly counsel and wisdom. They're going to pray with you or going to be an encouragement to you, safe for you to share information that you're not afraid they're going to go share with the world, but that are also people that are going to speak life into a hopeful future. You know, it's easy for us to go talk to the friends that are going to say that jerk and you could never go back to him and cut him loose and all of that. But you want to make sure that you have some people, if your heart is that you want to save this marriage, that you don't want your relationship to end in a divorce, then you need to have people that are going to say, okay, yep, you can feel that anger. Yes, that was terrible what happened and process those emotions, but eventually get you to the place of, but there is hope for something different. There is hope for something better. And here's how, and just encouraging you in that. And as we talk some more today, what that really looks like for the offended, the part that you play. But really what we said to the offender too is you both having kind of a time where you're separately processing your emotions is I think better in the initial phase because your emotions and your feelings of betrayal and hurt, putting that and coming at your spouse, the offender who's got their own emotions and things, that might just kind of create more firestorm and hurt. It's probably better to take some space and to say, you need to go process some things with someone that you trust that's going to help you think about the things you need to do as the offender. I need some space to kind of process where I'm at with somebody to know where am I coming from and what would I need to even see? What would it even look like to try and trust my spouse again after this? Those are things that you can process with a trusted friend um, in that initial time and to take the time to kind of process through it and to feel like, it's a person that's safe for you to say whatever you need to say and feel whatever you need to feel. What do you say, Tracy, to the, the person, the spouse who is saying, my best friends, my family members, my sisters, my brothers, my parents, th they're all saying, ditch the guy. They're mm -hmm. all saying, I told you, I knew it, or whatever. What, what do you say to that person who's in that situation, who really is surrounded by people who... They, who, who love them, and, and, but they're saying these kinds of things. They're actually not speaking life into the marriage. What do they do with those relationships in this time? Yeah, well, like we said to the offender last week, it's okay to reach out to your family for support and just for love. You're going to need that. You need people in your corner that love you and can just you know be the listening ear for you. But I don't think that's the most productive person for your trusted counselor or mentor because your family is naturally going to want to protect you. And like you said, if they're saying things like, you know, we knew all along this guy was a loser or she was a trouble. We tried to tell you that that's not helpful for you as you start to picture a hopeful future of saving the marriage. So you just have to be wise about if you've got some of those people that are going to say to the negative, you got to make sure that the person you're really talking with is a person that's going to speak life into your marriage again, if, because that's the whole point of this series is that there is hope for reconciliation. There's hope for a healthier marriage, but both of you have to do your part. So if you're going to get stuck in the places of bitterness and resentment, then that's not going to bode well for a hopeful, healthy marriage. So don't, 
Don't have people only speaking that feed that part of your heart. You need to have people in your life that are going to say, yes, but, but there is forgiveness, but there is the ability to earn trust back. You know, again, if you put the shoe on the other foot and you were the one that had the affair, how would you want your spouse to respond to you? Wouldn't you want a second chance? Wouldn't you want the opportunity to make it right? So the right trusted people are going to be the people that say there, you can express your emotions and your honest feelings, but they're also going to direct those conversations toward productive focus, productive future towards your end goal to save your marriage. Yeah, and if you're listening to this and you're, you're even just thinking this through saying, I'm kind of on the fence. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. I, I don't even, I'm so angry. I'm so, I'm so frustrated. I'm so depressed, whatever. You know, you're thinking through those stages of grief. And you're saying to yourself, I don't, I don't know if I really want anyone to speak life. I'm not sure I want to fight for this marriage. I think I want to just punish my spouse. I think I just want to be done. I'm so, I can't trust them again. I can't, I, I can't find it in, my, in myself to even want to move on. I would just say that's why this second point is so important. The reason you, don't just seek wise counsel if you're totally bought into it. Seek wise counsel, even if you're not bought into reconciliation, don't, you know, there's something about, there's something natural in all of us that we want to surround ourselves with the things, with people who are going to say the things that we want to hear, that, that our flesh wants to hear, you know, that, ang- that feeds our anger or our frustration or our self-pity and victimization. You're a victim. That's true. But you don't have to have a victim mentality in this. You can still say, I'm going I'm going to try my best. I'm going to do my part to try to restore this marriage. And so if you're not even there yet, that's okay. Surround yourself with some people who are going to say those kinds of things to you. Because over time, that kind of stuff might really sink in. So this second, this second step here, Tracy, really might, might take weeks or months for someone. You, you know, the, the, the offended spouse might say, thank you for confessing this to me, or maybe they didn't, but you found out. I'm just going to need some time here. I'm going to need some time to process and gather my thoughts. What we're saying to you is don't just surround yourself with the haters. Make sure that you have some people in your life that are going to truly speak life into your marriage, and you might need that for weeks or even months. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. There, there is no timeline here exactly. I mean, this is not something that immediately after hearing this, you're like, oh, I'm going to go meet with somebody. And now, now we're talking about saving our marriage. Like, of course, there's, that's what we're saying. Your time of just taking a breath, I mean, that might be weeks or months. Seeking wise counsel and just choosing to be like, okay, I know what you're saying is right. It's not what I want to hear, but it's what I need to hear that you just kind of you know, time is your friend at this point of just kind of processing through these emotions, working through those emotions. But at the end of the day, just like for the offender, it's going to have to do whatever they have to do to earn your trust is that you over time can have a heart to say, you know what, the alternative here of getting a divorce, that's not an easy path either. That's going to bring about pain also. Maybe, just maybe over time, if I'm seeing the offender really working hard or willing to do whatever I'm asking, maybe Maybe I could see a glimmer of hope for us to move past this place of pain. But time is definitely your friend 
wise counsel, people helping you process and kind of encouraging you towards future focus that's more positive, not negative, like you said, not about just hating. Over time, you might be surprised where your heart can go. And with 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 God at the center of that, praying for the Lord to just kind of bring your heart to that place, there is hope. You could get there. So at some point then, you can move on to the third thing that you're going to have to do if you, if you want to if you want reconciliation, if you want hope after the affair in your marriage, and that is to have fruitful conversations. And Tracy, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had, but maybe the first question that people are asking is, how much information should I ask for? You know, my spouse has come to me and is hopefully if, they've, if they're doing their part, you know, lesson two in the series, if they're doing their part, hopefully they've come to me, they've owned it, they haven't pointed fingers. They're not trying to minimize it. They've owned it. You know, we address this a little bit with the offender, but now let's talk to the offended about this. How much information should they be seeking? How much detail should they be seeking about the affair or the affairs? I know this is so hard. This is why it's good to process this with with wise counsel, because I think what you have to wrestle with is Am I asking this information because I'm testing the trustworthiness or the transparency of my spouse? Or am I asking this question because I feel like having that information is going to help me move forward? And I think that's just kind of hard. I think every person's going to be a little unique in that. But I think you want to be careful that you don't ask for all this information. And, and what I mean by that is more of like maybe specifics or details about, let's say, the sexual part of the affair is having that image in your mind of your spouse with somebody else, is that helpful to you? Or is that going to get you stuck or just kind of fixated on that? So you want to make sure that when you ask for information, that it's the information that you feel like you really need and, and that it still can demonstrate that your spouse is willing to be forthright with whatever you ask, but the information you're taking in is beneficial to your heart and not just more crushing blows. It's just kind of something that you just continue to punish yourself. So my advice is just that you process through that with your, your trusted wise friends. Like what information do I really, I mean, would I love to really know all that? I, I demand to know that I deserve to know that. Yes. Yes, you do. You deserve to know all the information. No stone should be left unturned. But I think the question is what will some of that information do to you? Will it be helpful or will it be harmful? Yeah, we told the the offender, by the way, it's helpful for you to know this. We told the offender that they need to they need to do whatever you want them to do in terms of divulging information. But but the problem is you might in you might in your over in not overreaction, in your reaction to this, you might want a bunch of information, especially up front, and not even really be thinking through what it's gonna do to you. And how it's going to hurt you. So what we told the offender is that they need to say, I will divulge whatever you want because I'm not trying to hold this back. I'm not trying to be in the shadows here. But I think it's there's some information that'll be helpful for them to confess and be clear about, about with their mentor, with their trusted, wise confidant. And it would be, I think it'd be helpful for you to know, and we've told couples this before, is okay, let's say that the husband's the offender, is that the husband says, I am going to 
answer every question and confess every detail to this person because I want you to know that I'm not holding anything back. I'm not trying to be elusive here, but but again, it's helpful for you to know that's coming out to somebody. It just shouldn't. It's probably sh- isn't helpful if you're the if you're that person that's receiving all of that confession. So bear that in mind and have that conversation with your mentor, with your friend, who's going to help you to kind of kind of process some of the details of that. Tracy, there's some other things I think for the offended spouse to keep in mind as they're having some of these fruitful conversations. And one of them is, and this is hard, but I think they need to know to use feelings language rather than an accusatory tone. Explain what that means. Like, what's the difference between those two things when, we're work, when they're working through this conflict? Yeah. So when you're ready to start talking with your spouse, now you guys are coming together, you're starting to look at the marriage, the relationship, where do we go from here? What does it look like to earn trust? That the that your your spirit that you come to these conversations is with the feelings language of how their their actions hurt you, how your heart is sad, how you're wounded, how you're angry, how you feel betrayed, and that you come with the emotions that the affair have brought upon you rather than you just saying you're a jerk, you did this to me, and a lot of you statements coming at your spouse again. That's just going to create more division rather than an an environment where conversation can be had and movement can move in a positive direction. You just have to keep it to your feelings and not making accusation at, at the offender is as much as you might want to, it's more important what, what you're really hurt by what really matters are your feelings, how the, the actions of your spouse have so deeply hurt you. So make sure that they hear that and not can't just close you down or shut down because now you're just coming at them with a lot of you are this, you are, you did this kind of language. Yeah. When you do that, it really puts them in on the defensive. And now it's, so, it's just harder for them to really meet your needs. I mean, you want them to, you want them to hear what you're saying and respond to how it has made you feel but you're making it harder for them to do that if you're just pointing fingers all the time. Now, again, it is their fault. We're not saying it's not their fault. It's just going to be on a practical level. It'll be so much more helpful if you use feelings language rather than that accusatory tone, because it'll put them in a better position to give you what you need. And, and that, and that's helpful. And maybe it's even helpful for you to realize Part of it is you want to punish them. Part of part of you is that you want to, you don't, be honest with yourself, part of it is you don't want to give them a win at this point. You Maybe you don't want them to hear your feelings language and, and truly genuinely apologize and repent and, and care about you and listen to you because you're mad at them and you want to keep punishing them. Well, that's a you thing then. At some point, that's a you thing. At some point, that's something you're going to have to deal with and you're going to be the roadblock then to, to keep the marriage from moving forward. So that, again, these are the kinds of things that's really helpful for you to begin to process with that wise counselor in your life, that mentor who can really kind of help you think through some of these, some of these things that are going on. Cause it is a little more complicated than you think it, it, you, you know, we see this, we've seen this before Tracy, where the, uh, the offending spouse, the, you know, the offender is really the one that is more committed to reconciliation than the offended. And that's just really sad when 
the person did definitely make a mistake, but now the the offended is just not really willing to budge. Well, and that's where we're saying from the outset of this series is it really takes both of you. You have different roles to play, but you both play key roles in the choices that you make, the attitude you have, the words that you speak if you want to save your marriage. So it can't be now the offended that you just punish your spouse for the rest of their life and just hold that over their head. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm going to have to forgive you. I have to release that uh, right that I have to hold that over your head because I, I want to have a healthy marriage with you. So I'm going to have to give up that right in order for us to move forward. You know, the offender is going to have to take a lot of humble pie and do a lot of hard work of earning your trust back. They may have some mindset of, well, the marriage wasn't, I wasn't fulfilled in the marriage. That's why I did what I did. Well, too bad. That's not an excuse. So the same thing then to the offended that to fight against those thoughts that want to fuel you to just want to punish and to hold it over your head. If you want to have fruitful conversations that move towards reconciliation and a healthy marriage moving forward, then it has to be more feelings language, not accusatory, that you have productive conversations on here are the boundaries that I need to have in place right now, emotionally and physically with you. Here's what I need from you right now. It's not that you just shut off all communication. You never talk to your spouse again. Like these are the things that lead to more productive conversation and that you eventually can come up with some specific things of how your spouse can earn your trust back. Can you, can you explain what you mean about being clear about the boundaries emotionally and physically from the vantage point of the offended spouse? What does that mean? Yeah. So, so you might say, you know what, I need you to move out for a time. I can't even live in the same house with you. I need, I need total physical separation from you. Um, maybe, maybe after a couple of months, it's, I'm still not comfortable with you living in the house, but maybe we could go to dinner once a month and start to, you know, spend some time together, or we can be at the same games with our kids, you know, whatever you, you with your trusted counselor and friends can kind of decide what are those boundaries that you need in place and for how long. And then those boundaries can move as you move along. You know, what are the emotional boundaries? Like, I don't want to have any conversation for the first two months. Um, I'm not ready to hear. I love you. Or, you know, cause sometimes for the offender, they're just so, so ready to do whatever it takes that there may be, this is what we said to the offender last week, you have to listen to what your spouse needs. So this is where to the offended, you need to speak up and say, I'm not ready to hear. I love you. I can't be on the phone with you every night because you offender are trying to, you know, make sure that you don't totally lose sight of me, but I'm just, I need space to kind of process through this betrayal. So just being really clear about what are the boundaries that you need physically and emotionally for, for periods of time until you're ready to move that boundary and allow the offender to come back in, in some ways. Yeah. And I want to make sure that you're, you're not misunderstanding what we're saying. We're not saying you put these boundaries up because you want a divorce. We're saying you put these boundaries up. And I think it's important to articulate this to your spouse, because think about it, your spouse just cheated on you. So you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a second, if I have them move out, then aren't they going to just, am I, am I not just setting them up to cheat on me again? Mm -hmm. There's even less oversight now. Well, no, what we're saying is that you're communicating to each other, hey, we're committed to this. 
I, I'm not moving on and, and you shouldn't move on. I'm not like, this is an opportunity for you to continue to earn my trust is a kind of thing you should say to your spouse who has already cheated on you. But I think it's important for you to communicate with them that you're still committed to the marriage. You just need some space that you're still willing to fight for the marriage. You're not moving on it. We tell couples this all the time, whatever you do, speak life in your marriage and do not do something that makes reconciliation impossible for your marriage and articulate that, speak that. Even if you, even if you're a little bit, you're kind of on the fence yourself about it, but still speak it, say, I'm committed to this. We're going to work this out. I'm just really upset right now. I'm, I can't handle this emotionally right now. Here's what I need from you right now. You need to stop saying, I love you. I'm not ready for that right now. Someday we'll get there, but I'm not ready. These are the kinds of things that you need to say so that your spouse isn't getting the wrong idea that because you're not clear with them, that, that they're, you pretty much have given up on the marriage. I think it's important to do that even as you're setting those boundaries emotionally and physically. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that's where with both of you, with your trusted people, maybe those people can come together and you can kind of plot that course of what it looks like, what, why these boundaries are in place, that they're aware of it. Maybe there's a marriage mentoring couple or a professional counselor that then you're talking to that the understanding of those boundaries is for, is for space, for thinking and clarity. But again, like you said, but the mindset is, but eventually this, this is where we're trying to get to the end goal is we want to save our marriage, but what are some of the boundaries that the offended needs in place for a time to kind of work through their emotional piece of this so that they can come to these fruitful conversations with clarity and direction and purpose and not from a place of anger and resentment and no clarity at all. And really, that's the, that's the fourth thing. You've heard us say it now quite a bit. But that's the fourth thing that you need to commit to as the offended spouse is to be clear. You know, we told, your, we told the offender last week that they need to be humble. And it's important. They need to be humble. But you need to be clear. You need to, it's your responsibility to be clear with your spouse about what it's going to take for them to earn trust back. Because that's, what, that's their main goal is they're going to do whatever it takes to earn trust back. But trust is measurable. And if you're, not give, if, if you're not doing your part to say, here's what I need you to do for me. Here are, some, here are three things I need this week from you to, so that you can begin to earn my trust back. A, B, C. I need you. And be clear about those things so it's not a moving target for them. And so that you can see if they're really doing it. it, it needs, you need to be able to say at the end of the week or the month or whatever, you did these things or you didn't do these things. So it's your responsibility to be clear and specific about how your spouse can begin earning trust back. And again, just like the offender has a lot of work to do. I, we recognize this is work. This is, uh, you laying aside the emotional pain to say, okay, I need to give room for my spouse to earn my trust to see if, if we can make this thing go, what are the things that I need to see? You know, what are, and these are great things that you'd be processing with your, with your trusted counselor and advisors and friends. Like what, what do I need to see in their, access to their phone or to their social media accounts? What do I need to see about knowing that the relationship was actually cut off officially? What do I need to know about how, 
how my spouse checks in with me their time, like what it looks like when they're at work or the weekends or whatever, you know, laying out those things and being specific. So, you know, you know what you're expecting and they know what you're expecting, because then that's how you can start to measure if trust is being built. This is what I need. An offender does that. Then you can say, okay, I see that you really are in good faith, trying to respond to these things and are showing me trustworthiness in your actions. But if you're not clear, then it's like the target's always moving, moving for you, moving for them. And it's, it's really hard to get any traction towards moving forward if you're not clear about how they can be earning your trust. Okay, so you've given a few examples, but maybe, maybe we should help our couples with this. What are some of the other things that they might think about asking for and being really clear about some measurable items to earn trust back? Well, I mean, I think the big one is just access to whatever accounts the offender has that the offended maybe doesn't know a password, even to like banking things. Like if some of your finances are separate, um, you would have access to bank accounts or credit cards, um, phone records, the phone itself, passwords to social media accounts. Um, you know, for a lot of couples, it might be checking in several times during the day or if, or if you're like on a business trip, uh, you know, having like some checkpoints of things that you would do to be like, okay, I'm in a meeting from three to 5.30, then I'm having dinner with so-and-so and then I'll be back in the hotel room. I'll call you, you know, just some of those things that would be that, that you could say to the offender, these are the things I need to see. And then the offender can be like, okay, I can do that. I can check in on those points. But really for a lot of it, it's, it's the access to the things that likely were the secret ways that they communicated with the person they were having the affair that you just kind of create opportunity. I can pick up your phone at any moment, um, that I can look at your computer and any messaging that could be happening there. Another one would be, you know, saying, I want you to meet every other day or at least a phone call every other day with your mentor. Yeah, exactly. You know, with that confidant, I, you know, I think you should have the confidant's number to the offended spouse. You need to, and make no bones about it. Just say, I need, I need, I need access to your confidant because, and I would like the confidant to, to kind of reach out to me again, whatever it takes to make it feel like you've got people supporting you you're both on the same page. You're very clear about it. And the offender, the offending spouse should say, whatever, I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever it takes. It it's not their job to say it's that sounds ridiculous or over the top. I think they say, whatever I need to do, I want to do it. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do my part. But again, for you, the offended spouse, your part is to make sure you're helping come up with that list that would really make you feel like we're making progress, they're earning trust back. Because if you don't give them a chance to earn that trust back, again, then you're the roadblock. You're the reason that that marriage isn't going to move forward because you're just kind of sitting in your corner pouting about it and you're so hurt and offended that then nobody wins. And those are the kinds of marriages that don't make it. Tracy, I could, I could, hear, I could hear the offended spouse saying man, that just sounds like I'm micromanaging my spouse. I don't want to have to micromanage my spouse. What would you say to that? 
Well, I don't think you're micromanaging. I think I think a betrayal happens, so you're just laying out what you would need to see for them to earn your trust, which which is true even in a healthy marriage without an affair. I'm, we're always in a position of earning trust with our spouse, no no matter what the situation. You're, the offender has a choice to make. They could choose not to do those things, and then that that would give you a clearer picture of maybe where their heart is. But again, these are the things that are required to fight for a healthy marriage. That it might seem a little ridiculous that you have to make up a list, but earning trust is a serious business. So, so even though that might seem like, why do I have to do the work of telling you what it means to be trustworthy? Well, it's because you you know what you need. So step into that and be bold and saying, this is what I need to see from you to know that I can give you trust. You have to earn it from me. Yeah. And I would recommend, you know, let them participate in that. Let them own it, that list as well. You know, I think it's totally fair for you to say, maybe one of the early meetings is to say, I want you to come up with a list of some of the things that you want to do to earn my trust back. But then you make a list also, and let's see how much overlap there is on those two lists. So don't feel like it needs to be all on you. They need, you know, one of their big steps is to take ownership and is to own their part. And so part of that might be helping to develop a list. And, you know, maybe they'll come up with some things, some better ideas than what you can even think about. You're still kind of reeling. And maybe for them, it's going to even be helpful in earning your trust is that half of the items are, are, were their idea. That's wonderful. That's great. But then say, yeah, good. I want that on my list and say, that's what I need. And we're going to measure that. And we're going to, let's work on this. And, you know, I would say to you that, that this is a new, I think it's important for you to know that this is, this doesn't have to be like the new normal for the rest of your life. But in this season right now, this is something, this is a step you'll need to take together. Hopefully five years down the road, you're not going to have to have a list like that. So explicit because they've earned your trust. There's more that that list is written on their heart more than it has to be written on a on a sheet of paper or on an app on their phone. Mm -hmm. But again, it's your responsibility to be clear about it so that they know how they can earn their trust back. And you know, Tracy, the last thing we we the last thing on the list for the offended spouse who wants to save their marriage after an affair is to extend forgiveness. You know, we told we told the offender that they need to earn trust. But the other side of this, we talk about this in lesson two of our marriage basics series, where you know that that the you know healthy couples earn trust. Like it's all you earn it. You don't. It's not freely given. They have to earn it. And so we told your spouse last week that they have to earn it. They can't just demand it. They have to earn it. But but here's the difference between forgiveness and trust. Trust is reactive. So you're gonna. You're going to trust them as a reaction. The more it's going to be about their trustworthiness. So the more that the more that they earn your trust, then the more you'll be able to trust them. That's that's what it means that trust is reactive. But forgiveness is different. Forgiveness is proactive. So Tracy, explain explain what that means to the offended spouse. So what do you mean when you say that you need to be proactive in forgiveness of your spouse? Yeah, this is this is the hard part. Is you Again, releasing the right to hang on to hurt and bitterness and giving your spouse room to earn your trust. So forgiveness is a gift that you extend to your spouse to say, I don't trust you right now, but 
I will forgive you for what you did. And I will give you room to earn my trust. I will give room in my heart to see you with eyes of potential, <laughs> with, with more positive eyes than just looking only at the negative, because that's a very easy response for the offended to just, like we talked about earlier, hold it over their head. Just no matter what they do, it's never going to be good enough. And you, you can choose that. You could choose that, but that's not going to lead to a, a healthy, reconciled marriage. So the hard work of your spouse earning your trust, your forgiveness is a part of that equation where you give your spouse room to do that, that you could receive their efforts of earning your trust and to say, I, that is a deposit in the, in the trust bank account. And I see what you're trying to do. And I appreciate what you try to do. And I want to see that as a positive as building blocks for a marriage that could be healthy moving forward versus you just holding on to bitterness and resentment. And no matter what your spouse does, you're never going to see it for what he's, he or she is trying to do. And it just leads to more brokenness. What do you say to the spouse who says, I, I feel like I feel like that is telling communicating to my spouse that what they did was okay. Is that that's what forgiveness feels like to me. It feels like I'm saying it's no big deal what you did, but it is a big deal, so therefore I can't forgive. Yeah. And again, I think that's the difference between trust and forgiveness. Forgiving your spouse doesn't mean that you trust them and it doesn't mean that they're off the hook and it doesn't mean that what they did was wrong. What it means is that you're, you're giving the gift to say, I give you room to earn my trust. And I think if we look at this from a spiritual standpoint, none of us come to Jesus with anything to offer for the gift of forgiveness he's given us, but yet he forgives us freely. And so we have to use that mentality of, I have been forgiven for much greater sins against a holy God. I need to give this gift to my spouse. I have to choose to release my right to bitterness and resentment and say, I forgive you for what you did, but you've got a lot of work to do on earning my trust. So it's not a free pass in terms of now we just skip down the lane and we forget all this stuff. It just simply means I forgive you, which means we have room to do something new here. The disciples asked Jesus, hey, how, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? And his answer is, it's kind of a famous answer. You've probably heard this before if you've grown up in the church or even attended church a little bit. It's kind of a cultural thing. Jesus said in response, 70 times 7. You should forgive 70 times 7. He wasn't trying to give a number. Like 491 is it's done. You don't have to forgive after 490. No, that's not what he was saying. It it was really a, they understood that to mean basically it was just saying you should always forgive every time it comes up. And you know, an insight that might be helpful for our listeners is Jesus isn't speaking about 490 different sins necessarily. And the truth is, you, you might say, I don't know if I can extend forgiveness. I don't know if I can live in that space where I'm just I have a forgiven heart, a forgiven attitude toward my spouse. What they did is so hurtful to me. But then I think you should just listen to what Jesus said. He said, essentially, he said, every time it comes back up, forgive again. So you forgive, and then maybe literally five minutes later, you're feeling bitter and resentful again. Well, then forgive again. And it happens another uh, the next day, forgive again. Every time it comes, that same offense, every time it comes back up, 
you can make the decision to extend forgiveness. I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to extend forgiveness. And over time, I think what you'll find is, is that you, it's not, you're not going to have to do it every 10 minutes. Over time, I think it can be a response that is that you're able to sense, especially if your spouse is doing his or her part to really work through and, and earn that trust back in your marriage. Yeah. And that's for a lot of, for the, a lot of the offended, it might be a daily thing that you choose to forgive every time it comes up, every time an image comes up in your mind of picturing your spouse with somebody else that you say, that's just not productive to stay in that place. I just, I release it. I forgive them. And I'm going to look at the things that my spouse, the offender is trying to do to earn my trust. And that's what we're building towards. Because again, if the shoe were on the other foot and you were the one that made a terrible decision and you were trying to do everything that you could to make it right, wouldn't you want your spouse to see that? Wouldn't you want your spouse to give you a chance to make it right? So as hard as that is, like your, the hardest part of the job for the offender is earning trust. The hardest part for you is to choose to forgive. It's a gift and you can give it. And I hope that you do, because that's going to be an important ingredient if you want your marriage to have a chance moving forward and to be hope and reconciled. So those are five things you must do if your spouse has had an affair, because there really is hope after the affair. If you're both committed to doing your part, then your marriage can be reconciled. It it can actually be better than it ever was, because you can get to the root of some of those issues that, that have made your marriage a struggle up until this point. So to have this conversation or any of these conversations from this series, you can find it at pursuegod.org forward slash family. The series is called After the Affair. Check it out. And we also encourage you to make sure to subscribe to this podcast and continue to tune in every week as we talk about some of these issues to strengthen your marriage or even to help you to grow as a parent. Hey, listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we wanna make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit pursuegod.org forward slash donate.